Dr. Brian Keating. Alan, my friend, it's great to be here. My first in-person podcast since the pandemic began. <laughs> quite, so a, quite an honor. Good to be here. So pumped. Into the impossible, interviewing many of the greatest minds, also professing, <laughs> uh, passing along the physics knowledge. That's right. The astrophysics knowledge, also with the cosmic microwave background, the origins of the universe, man. That's right. The biggest picture topics, it's, you know, trying to get the next generation of that shirt you're wearing there, <laughs> inspire the next generation. Look at that. That is some serious stuff. I have the matching underwear. <laughs> the underwear. <clears throat> we can show that later. But. <laughs> That's the behind the scenes stuff. <laughs> Literally. You gotta, if you go to subscribe to Brian's channel and then if you go to his OnlyFans page, right. he has yeah, his Big Bang right. underwear <laughs> photos of him. Actually, they were asking me this. I was doing a documentary earlier today. I was telling you and they're like, where did the name Big Bang come from? And I'm like, do you really want me to say? Because it could be a little bit, you know, for PG-13. I know your audience keeps it clean, but yeah, yeah it's it's funny. It's it's funny. All the All the puns. There's a lot of bad puns you can make in our industry, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then also authoring, losing the Nobel Prize as well. And also you have the analysis of this astrophysical data that's coming from the observatory and array in mm -hmm. Chile. Mm -hmm. And so there's that. And so there's a lot of funding that's went into that. And so yeah. that's exciting. And then there's the Arthur C. Clarke. It's the Center for Human Imagination. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like to have a diverse portfolio of intellectual <laughs> interests because you know, I think that's what makes life interesting. You, you just do one thing, you get kind of, as Robert Heinlein said, specialization is for insects. You don't want to just do one thing. For me, you know, I've always felt a lot of respect for my friends that do the theoretical physics or math, um, even chemistry. I was inspired by Isaac Asimov as a kid. Obviously, Galileo and people like that, but Stephen Hawking, Brian Greene, Lisa Randall, those kinds of names. But they're all like theoreticians. They're all theoretical uh, astrophysicists, cosmologists, what have you. And I said, where's the place for someone who talks about experiments, actually building this stuff, hands-on, high-tech cameras, sensors, development, data analysis, cryogenics, you know, taking these things to the bottom of the planet, to the South Pole, to the top of the Andes Mountains. I wanted to be that voice. I wanted to seek out, you know, kind of a different niche, not to be too over-specialized, but then broaden it out with conversations with the brightest minds, as I say, in the multiverse. And I get to do that. I'm trying to create the channel that's basically a free university, you know, because I'm a, I'm a state employee here in yep. California. And I feel I want to give back to the public. I want to give back and create the university I wish existed when I was a kid that you won't have to pay any college tuition debt from. And uh, you get to attend in your pajamas, so that's pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, it gives me a lot of uh, a lot of grat uh, you know gratification <laughs> to do that. Yeah, I love the component of being so driven to be a polymath and to pull from many different fields and many of the greatest minds, and then also to distill what is learned in ways that is applicable for the masses practically to apply to augment their lives. Mm -hmm. And then I love the other component, which is building up these catalogs of interviews with really thought provoking minds and then have that be 
like on all of these different interviewer channels. It's just massive catalogs of hundreds, if not a thousand or more of these interviews mm -hmm. with these great minds for people, like you said, in their pajamas, when they look up a key term about biology or about consciousness or whatever they're researching, that they can very easily and quickly find interviews with the greatest minds on those subjects and then pick it up themselves. Yeah. 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 And what I always wanted to do is to, is to kind of, you know, rekindle when you're in college, a lot of times my students, yeah, I just finished grading my finals. My, my students, I'm proud to say nobody failed cosmology this quarter. If you're out there, my friends, um, everyone did well. Don't worry. I just submitted <laughs> the grades. If you graduated yesterday, don't worry. We're not going to take back your diploma, at least not for failing my cosmology class. Um, but the, but the fact is, you know, a lot of times in college I was fixated on my grades. You know, I wasn't really enjoying it for the sake of the intellectual journey. And I feel like we do that a lot. We're kind of training, you know, British gentlemen and gentlewomen of the 1700s, you know, to have all these kinds of different attitudes and, and, and really not really training them for a craft or a trade or, or even to go deep. And that's fine. Um, but I think it's also important to take a step back and say, what makes us uniquely human is our consciousness, is our humanity, is our imagination. And I start to realize when I interviewed the late, great Freeman Dyson, I'm like, a lot of these guys, men and women that I interview are getting up there in years, and I have this archival footage of them. Yep. Nine Nobel Prize winners, three billionaires, four astronauts, one while she was on the space station, floating around answering my question. Yeah. You know, how many chances do people have to do that? And I also like to do live, you know, chats with the audience, bring them in, because then they get a chance to interact with these minds, and it's not just me. And we're networking, connecting together, this multiverse kind of hive mind. And it's just phenomenal. Exactly. We could only do this now. We couldn't do Perfect. what you and I are doing 10 years ago. I mean, it didn't yep. really exist. It's phenomenal. Let's take advantage of it. Yep. I love that point. You get the archival footage of mm -hmm. these greatest minds. Yep. And so we've had also people on our show that have passed yeah. that we've interviewed. And so now it's an honor to have went through the process of being able to basically capture a signature of their individuated consciousness. Correct. And then also I love the bringing in the audience because then the audience in a sense gets like their little five minutes of Hey, check it out. My question right. got answered, and now I'm on Brian Keating's channel yeah, yeah. with that Preserved little... in digital amber for all of eternity. Yep. You know, Carl Sagan, who's one of my great influences, I'm sure influences you, he said a book is proof that human beings can work magic because you have this long-dead author, perhaps, like with me and Galileo. I have this, you know, platonic love affair with Galileo. And what he does for me I hear his voice. Yeah, I don't hear it literally, but wait, I'll tell you more about that later because I am bringing his voice to life. Uh, but but we have hear his voice in my head as I'm reading him, and he's been dead for 400 years almost. So having that kind of connection, Carl Sagan called magic. But how much more so if you have their image and their voice, their voice, actual, imagine if you had Galileo recording with, you know, Brian Okitango, you know, back in the 1641 or whatever on the uh, Into the Impossible podcast. Now he can do it. There's no excuse not to give it away for free and just let let the world have it and see what happens, becomes of it. And, you know, people say, oh, well, how many, 
you know, why are you doing this? You're just trying to get attention, just to get clicks, just to get fame, just to get money. First of all, I'm not, if you do a YouTube channel, as you know, to try to make money, it's, a, <laughs> it's not the best use of your time. It's, there are other ways you could do, you could, you could like be a volunteer and make more money than <laughs> YouTube. First of all, you're at the whim of an algorithm that you can't control. You're at the whim of people's tastes and you're at the whim of how many people want to watch a particular cat rolling a ball of yarn up a hill or, or something like that, which I often do. Uh, Most but, of our videos about black holes get a lot less views than people dancing on TikTok. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not going to yeah. complain yeah. about that. It's just people are interested in yeah, watching what dance interested. right now. But if you get this niche, so for me, it's like to bring together these minds that people, usually people that have books coming out or projects that they're working on. Because when you're like a kid, you lose yourself in these projects. And I want to rekindle that and show it's not only these theoreticians, the Lenny Suskins, the Max Tegmarks, the people that, you know, similar people you've had on the show. But it's having conversations with people that are building stuff, that are tinkering with their hands. Because I think we're coming back to that now with this creator economy, but it's going to be creating things in real life and 3D printing and AI and machine learning, putting those things together and looking at data sets, connecting that, and maybe even bringing to life these ancient voices of the past. And those are the kind of the passion things I'm, I'm interested in nowadays. Yeah, that was actually sparking while you were talking was leveraging AI to recreate the faces and then also recreate the voices yes. as close as we can and then really take the the natural language parsing of all of the written text and then try and figure out the, the proper structure of what it would be like if you could query Galileo and then have him answer back in a way that could be decentralized, disseminated out to all of the people on the planet. So there's all these different versions of Galileo and of all of the greatest minds of the past that you would have never been able to do anything else besides read the words, like Sagan said, of, yeah. the, of the books. And now with all of the AI and virtual reality and all these cool things that are blossoming we can leverage those for educational purposes totally something that has been really resonant for me that i feel like you touched on that we could potentially even um, play with here for a bit would be how it's almost like one of the main <clears throat> evolutionary points of the journey of life is where the individuated consciousness stops making it about themselves and they start making it about other people and so that's why, you know, when you mention we're not doing this fame, we're not doing this for money, we're literally doing this not only because it's so profoundly cool to be able to be at the edge of what humans know, but also to be able to capture these individuated consciousness to both accumulate, to gather, to synthesize and distill and refine their most profound wisdoms, but to share it for free across the internet with people and whatnot. And so the simple like comment below in the videos where they say, wow, this profoundly augmented my life in some way, we live for that. Yeah. Like that is what is the essence, you could say, of why we do this. Yeah. Yeah. From my perspective, you know, getting to the see the network effect in action, you know, where you have a network and think about it, you know, we could even draw it on your on your yeah. board here. So if you draw like a matrix, like just an N by N matrix. <clears throat> and this is kind of cool that most people don't really understand, but but if you draw like a four by four matrix with four rows, four columns, just like a tic-tac-toe board, <clears throat> and, um, you know, so that has 16 different elements in it, um, and, and imagine these are people, 
So across the top, yep, there's uh, four people across the top, four people across mm -hmm. going vertically, four people going horizontally. That means that you might, there's, there's 16 different pairs between people. So there's person one with person two, uh, there's person, uh, there's in person this, one. In this yeah, one, so right? down the diagonal is one, one. Just call that one, one, one. Mm -hmm. Now go down the next diagonal is two, two. Right here. Yep. Yep. And then go three, three and go four, four. Now go back up next to one, one and call that one, two. Should we colon these or it, is does, it, it doesn't matter? Fine? Commas yep. are fine. Cool. Yep. Cool. Now go up the next to the one, one. Up, yep. yep. And then put that, call that one, two. One, two, yep. And next to that one, three. Yep. One, four. And now below the next one down, go to call that two, three. It's the second oh, row. Yeah. Oh, no, no, above it. Two, two, is this, three, yep, nice yep, two, three, and then two four. two, four. And then right below that one, call that one three, three, uh, three, four. three four. Okay, so now, and then there's a whole, so imagine each one of those people, one, two, three, and four, are the four people. So one, each person knows themselves, so that doesn't really count, right? So one knows himself, that's one, mm -hmm. one. But one knows two, one knows three, and one knows four. Now, and if you go on the other side, the, the bottom half of the matrix, that's just two knowing one, but that's the same as one knowing two. So there's really only mm -hmm. yep. those yep. six different yep. pairs. Now, if you were to draw another mm -hmm. element, just add one more row on that matrix, yep. you'll do that. Now there's five. You're going to see it's going to grow. It's going to increase not as the linear number. It's going to grow as the square. Should we add a column? You could, you could add a column if you want. Yeah, add one more column and then one more row because whatever column you add, yep. you have to add a row. And now imagine you, you doubled it whatever the number of pairs in other words the number of friends that you could possibly have is going to grow as the number of people squared yeah exactly so the those number of pairs of connections that are unique are going to grow as the upper half of that triangle and if you remember from from you know high school math the area of a triangle goes as the the base times the altitude of the triangle so that means it grows as the area. So that means it grows as the square. So if you double the number of, of people in your network, you square the number, you quadruple the number of connections between those people. Now imagine okay, you have- Okay, let's repeat that stat one yep. more time. Yeah. So right now we're doing a little bit of uh, analysis of network theory. Yep. So like, for example, if you have like, f let's say you have, you've moved into a new city, you've moved to New York or whatever. And let's say when you get there that you make five friends. Yep. And so you have five kind of friends in maybe the first month or two. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, well, you start seeing some connections form, but you're like, what would happen if I got five more yes. new friends? So now I you introduce them. Okay. Yeah. And so now, now there are combinations there where they don't even know you. They're not, they're like two and four getting together. Let's say it's called me number one, mm -hmm. looking out for number one. So numbers two and four know each other and now they're friends and it doesn't even have anything to do with me. Mm -hmm. So the number of connections is going to grow as your network squared and they're going to have all these individual connections without you. And that can go for anything that can go for Facebook friends. It can go, you ever get like someone. So let's, get, is a let's do that one more time. So the, the number of, yeah. So, the, the, so, so write down N capital N mm -hmm. that's the number of, of, of people in, in the, in your group. Right, the top is easier. Yeah. Capital, capital N. Uh, yeah. And then that's the number of people okay. and then bottom, uh, next to it, or you can put a comma, yeah. Uh -huh. N squared is the number of pairings or friends. So and N, N, N to the second power is the number of connections or pairings of those people. And what you can start to see, imagine, imagine it's like a family. Imagine that you have five people in a house, you know, a husband and wife and three kids. So now they're all together and they're doing, you know, whatever. And now they want to add on another kid or something like that. Do you have to build another house? Well, maybe, but but usually not. But now think about like all the new connections that you start to build. You actually grow 
faster. In other words, if you imagine that your happiness is based on not only your individual relationships with people, how many individual relationships you have, but their overall wellness is their connectivity to other people, right? So like if your friends are all antisocial and they don't get along with people, the odds are maybe you're not going to have so many friends, right? So like in my network, so I'm, let's say I interviewed nine Nobel well, Prize. We can also go back to the mm -hmm. New York example. Yeah. So, so what happens when you go from having the like, five yeah, initially to 10? Yes. To 10? Mm -hmm. Then you'll go from, say, N connections to N squared. And I'll be like 100 different possible connections. Oh, new possibilities new emerge. New possibilities so, emerge. So we're kind of, in a sense, we're also then another sort of way of, um, of visualizing this simultaneously could be something like um, that in the... In the in the tree in the tree of possibility, if you sort of uh, take, if you take the initiative to get to the, oh, you can't really can't really see that one that well, but if you if you in the tree of possibility take the initiative to go to a specific bifurcation point where you meet some people, mm -hmm. and then from there that opens up that the, branches off. Yeah, yeah. You know, you get more mm -hmm. yeah more yeah. connections from that point. The key point is that the ratio of let's say happiness it depends on the number of total connections that you spawned or you nucleated in your life. So that goes as n squared, but the cost to you, you just had n friends. So it goes as n squared over n, which goes as n. In other words, your happiness in life is going to grow with the number of connections that you make. So that can go for friends or can go for podcast guests. Mm -hmm. So when I have on, you know, so many people, I'm actually not only connecting them, like this week I had on Delilah Gates. She happens to be mm -hmm. the second African-American woman ever to get a PhD from Harvard in physics. Um, she and I now, now she's connected to uh, Sir Roger Penrose, who won the Nobel Prize in 2020 for the discovery of Penrose diagrams, Penrose yes. singularity theorem, et cetera, who is connected to Stephen Hawking. And now you can propagate it not only concurrently in time, but backwards in time. And you start to develop a very rich mesh of connectivity. It's another kind of fabric. Yeah. It's not a fabric of space time or material fabric, but it's it's, it's a it's social kind of, network fabric. It's a connectome yeah. of the brain of yeah. bra of external brains. In other words, your connectome is your own internal wiring of your brain. Yeah. But now we were connecting together for the first time because of the scaling power of these tools. Now I've met her in person. There are people I haven't met in person that I've interviewed, um, you know, on the podcast. And maybe I'll never meet them. Some of, some of them I've had on the podcast that you said are dead. Now, now you can actually have a connection between Delilah Gates, you know, who is this wonderful young woman who's uh, going from Harvard now down to Princeton. Now she has a connection to Freeman Dyson. Now there are connections there that can be spawned off and now she can be con connected in that way. So I think it's, it's kind of, it's almost like uh, morally imperative for people to take advantage of these tools. Now there is a downside. Should we make all the scientists um, have to do kind of this kind of production or yeah, hours. definitely not. Shouldn't have to do SciComm work, yeah. but it's uh, really great to do so, and it's really great when the people that are helping them do SciComm work are people that are really good at. They're kind of like the people that help the sales teams talk to the engineers at companies. <laughs> yeah, you know, so those are the kind of like SciComm people yeah. in a sense. And then there were several things that were coming up. There's like the connectome that's happening in our brain. And then there's also the connectome that's happening like planetarily between the individuated consciousness, between the, all these different conscious agents. And so then there's that massive network theory that's happening. And the reason why in a sense it's happening is because you have the bounding function as a planet. 
literally if you could like in a sandbox style video game if it was unbounded if the map was unbounded the conscious agents would never talk to each other mm -hmm. they would spread out they would spread out too far and so you've done like open ai's done all of these uh, neural mmo rpg style mm -hmm. um, simulations and the bounding function is mission critical so the very fact that there's eight billion of us bounded on a planet acts like a forcing function that we have to interact and engage with each other and so then that's what creates all these novel combinatorics that are endless of people connecting finding unique novel insights building the next cool things that enable us to do things like stream podcasts and all this type yeah of that's right stuff. yeah so yeah i mean the more connections we we both had on don hoffman <clears throat> who talks a lot about this so here's an example with him so he has this theory you know of kind of like this this um virtual desktop approach to reality and he kind of has you know reality is not what it seems um, one of the things that he's most interested in is like the emergence of consciousness from fundamental physics and a predecessor kind of concept to that is the emergence of space time itself. You know, is space and time, our space and time fundamental or do they emerge from some other properties? Our recent guest, Lee Smolin. And by the way, I don't know how you, how do you deal with like people? Like, Cause you've had all these people, uh, Jordan Peterson, Joshua Bach, um, Don Hoffman, like you want to talk about them and their contributions, but then, you know, you have trolls out there and they say, oh, you're just dropping names. Like, no, I'm not dropping names. I'm, I'm like, I'm going to coherently connect together what their contributions are. Don Hoffman is interested in Nima Akani Hamed at the Institute for Advanced Study. So I'm going to get him on the podcast to talk about, well, his fundamental emergence through the amplihedron ish, you know, proposal that he has that's controversial for how space and time are emergent, you know, not truly a fundamental property of reality and how that can or cannot supersede maybe string theory or something like that. Anyway, I'm curious. Do you, how do you handle, you know, kind of, you don't want to overburden the, well, if you go back to episode, you know, season one, uh, any mm. tips for a beginning podcaster in that sense? Like, what do you think about that? Because you don't want to like just drop names. Like I have, but I have these legacy conversations on the one hand. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, every conversation I want to be fresh, new, actionable, and useful to a new, whole new audience who maybe hasn't seen it. You know, a lot of my initial um, interviews. Off, off the bat, it feels yeah. like you're doing it exactly perfectly as it is. You know, that's been one of the core sort of like teachings across the planetary mystic and spiritual traditions is just that as it is it is already perfect and so brian keating exactly as he's podcasting is already perfect now does that mean a new piece of data may come from somebody that says hey have you tried this other resource right. that may be helpful and yeah it and it's make it better, better. Mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. but just generally speaking there's so much time that we pass in these cycles of um depression or anxiety or not saying that that's what we were talking about but that that's a frequent thing that we do but that it's sometimes it's just a simple recognition that me simply being alive mm -hmm. like the very fact that i exist is itself already worthy yeah it's, it's already mm -hmm. whole it's already full now does that also mean that there's going to be a beautiful north star and like a transcendent right. noble aim that i that I set my life towards, mm -hmm. of course it's also going to be that. But that's the simultaneity that kicks in. Like right now is beautiful and perfect exactly as it is, yet also we have this transcendent noble aim that we're sacrificing the present instant gratification for some sort of delayed, long-term, mm -hmm. selfless goal. Right. Yeah. yeah. And if I think if the, if, the, if the intention is pure 
you know, if you're not doing it for clicks and likes and whatever, which, you know, as I said before, if you're trying to do that and you're trying to make money from a channel, I mean, there's many, many more easy ways to do it. But I feel like a lot of people that are doing it don't really have a good metric. Like, what are they optimizing for? I'm a scientist. I'm used to optimization problems. Do I want to optimize, you know, for cost or schedule? Do I want to get it done fast? Do I want to get it done for a cheaper budget? Do I want both? Do I want to accomplish a certain scientific scope? Do I want to detect that looks these? like this? This tra- yeah. it looks like a matrix trade-off. That's space. Exactly what happens. Yeah, so you end up doing an optimization problem. Mini max. What's the maximum? You know, the minimum possibilities. Exactly. And we go through all these things, and it's so funny, you know, that you mention it because like how you agitate towards perfection without ever achieving it. But if you give up the agitation, you'll fail completely, right? So if I if I think about how we we're planning to build the Simons Observatory, get it taking data, um, you know, say late this year or um, perhaps early next year. And then we make what's called a risk matrix, which is exactly looks like that. So you have like, what could happen? What could go wrong? Um, and then you multiply, what's the probability that it could go wrong? What's the cost to fix it if it does go wrong or ensure against it going wrong? Yep. What's some of the remedies if it does go wrong? And then some of the ways that you can remedy it after the fact if it did go wrong, et cetera. So that's called a risk matrix. Yep, yep. And nowhere, and none of the people that I know in any experimental astrophysics program from largest telescopes, space telescopes, ground telescopes, what have you, nobody had global pandemic, right? So then you ask, well, is it worth having this risk matrix if you miss the one in a century risk that is the most devastating to the development of the Simons Observatory, yep. the telescope yep. in Chile at 5,200 meters above sea level? Isn't that worth it? Like, should you just scrap the whole? No, you do what you can and you refine it. And then someday there'll be someone who will remember, hey, wait a second, back in 2019, 2020, didn't they neglect this one little uh, very low exactly. probability event? And yeah. then didn't that end up costing yeah. them X, Y, and Z? So we v- do learn very, from it. Very similar to the future authoring programs mm. that like Jordan Peterson offers and yeah. whatnot and Tony Robbins offers. Yeah. Because you you are in 2015, You've ha- if you go back and look at some of your notes, you'll literally look at this, oh, like if I move to this new city and if I pursue this greater aim than what I was just yeah. in my local community doing, you know, and then you look back five years and then five years later, you look back and you're like, well, the reason why I ended up here was because I took into account this big matrix of possibilities. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, my optimization process has changed a lot as an early, a younger professor, graduate student, I was trying to optimize my chances to win a Nobel prize. I'm very candid about that. That was something I uh, worshipped in a certain sense. I sought out um, really at the expense of a great deal of happiness and internal satisfaction. And it really dominated a lot of my thought process. And um, and I think, you know, just, just being completely honest, having gone through it, I still see it in a lot of other people. And my hope is that through my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, and through some of the interviews I'm doing with podcast guests, including nine Nobel Prize winners, and through my upcoming book that's going to be in my transcriptions and edited conversations with the Nobel Prize winners called Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner, that's coming out in September, this will kind of demystify, kind of say like, you know, to put a short hand on it, you know, they put their pants on one leg at a time, they're ordinary people, they have to do ordinary things. When in science, most scientists are not very into mysticism, as I'm sure you've noted. They're not spiritual. And I'm not using that as a denigration in any mm-hmm. way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. I've gone through phases like that in my life. Um, but the, the point is, 
when you don't have a religion, I claim that you'll try to find a religion in some way, shape, or form. I almost know nobody who has no religion, has no kind of something that is fundamentally not provable that's taken upon faith. In science, it's often done, taken upon faith. These big picture questions will culminate in recognition among earthly mortals by a Nobel Prize. And so I aspired to that for a very long time. And I see people aspiring to that now. And even when I teach or when my colleagues teach, you know, we talk about, well, this experiment was thought about and this won the Nobel Prize or this theory. And if you can do this, you win a Nobel Prize. A guest on my show recently, Michio Kaku, has this God equation book. Um, and I'm honored to be associated with him to be giving out. Uh, he's going to be winning a big award that I will be announcing soon or will be announcing soon, um, courtesy of the Clark uh, Center and the Clark Foundation. Um, he, you know, he's done a tremendous amount for the world string theory, field theory, uh, et cetera, but he has his book and he's obsessed with the Nobel prize. And I, you know, I'm not sure he's going to watch this, but if he does, um, you know, I've talked to him about it, that you put that as the grade because we are scientists. We're used to being a plus students and getting, you know, uh, and never failing and never getting, and that becomes the grade. I think we're losing sight of the real goal. The real goal is comprehension and understanding of the cosmos when we're alive and able to appreciate it. Now, some say, do we have a right to do that when there's bigger existential crises that are facing us? Global warming, nuclear th threats, bioterrorism, all sorts of things. Um, some say even things like alien, you know, whatever, UFOs, things like this. Those could be existential threats. By what right do we have to study these questions? And yet, I feel these are the things that make us uniquely human. We study the conscious, you know, brain. That's what we're trying to comprehend is how do we fit into the universe? And we are the only creature that we know about that has a conscious ability to comprehend that we live in a universe that's comprehensible. And that, as Einstein said, is the most incomprehensible thing about the universe. That's right. Yeah. So I would take that last bit and I would pose what I would say is the most upstream solution to all that is downstream, which is that you can't study without knowing the instrument itself. So you're basically perpetually overlooking consciousness or awareness to study form. And you can't do that properly without understanding the instrument itself that you're using to mm. study the form. But how deep do you have to go in there? Because, you know, I always feel like these questions of, well, free will and, you know, is anybody well, truly I'll just, free? I'll, yeah. I'll just give you the most utilitarian mm -hmm. reason, right? Yeah. Because you also gave this list of all of these styles of like sustainable development goals, yeah. style, eradicating suffering, meeting basic needs, this type of stuff. Well, in on the analysis of the instrument itself, consciousness awareness itself, in that analysis, one becomes more sovereign in their own peace and joy. And then they're able to, at a deeper level, understand the same unconditional love for the entire cosmos that these major mystical figures have talked about before that underlying fabric of unity, like all coming from the same source. Like you can't argue and say that like I came from a different big bang than you came from. Right. And so basically the same comprehension, the universe comprehending itself is what is shared among us. 
the potential to do it, right? I mean, there are some people that, as we know, will watch the TikTok videos and the aspiration to do it is not in their kin. That's not something they're concerned with. So I always wonder, though, when people say, you know, like Carl Sagan, you know, the ma the majesty of the universe is encapsulated in the grain of dust. Or, you know, when you look up at clouds on Jupiter, you know, do you feel like, oh, I'm really, I'm really akin to that because, you know, I make methane <laughs> and Jupiter's made of methane. No, I, I find it hard to believe that I would feel that kind of kinship the way I would with a, with a puppy or even a cockroach. Like today I was walking by, I almost stepped on a cockroach and I, I it sounds so weird, Alan, but I felt compassion for this freaking cockroach because I've been thinking so much about artificial intelligence lately and something like, you know, that Michio Kaka actually said, he's like, AI, like people are like totally delusional. We're not even at the point, like it's barely a, like a cockroach level. Like it can't do anything that we, yes, it can do things faster. It can use bad statistics, machine learning. It can do funny dances and robots that look scary or whatever, but it's not really intelligent because it's really inculcated with the intelligence of its creator. And so he got me thinking about cockroaches. And I swear, I almost stepped on a cockroach. I felt like I was like killing a puppy, but I didn't step on it. I didn't kill it. And I'm like, I feel more kinship with that cockroach than I do with the planet Jupiter. So yeah, the creation source, the Big Bang. I mean, how far remote, like how far do you want to stretch it? You well, know? let's just keep it close, yeah. right? So most of us have families and we mm -hmm. have kids. Yeah. And so if we have families and kids, what we're typically used to is extending out this feeling of unconditional love to our nuclear family. Yeah. And then much of what is taught in spirituality and mysticism are simply extending the unconditional love beyond the family to the community and to the world at large and then to the whole cosmos. Mm -hmm. So basically turning the universe itself into your own body. And in doing so, then you have that same feeling like what you described with the cockroach. You begin having that same feeling towards life itself. Oh, certainly towards life. I'm not arguing about life. Like, I'm not even arguing about plant life. Or, but I'm, I'm arguing about inert things, nebulae, the Big Bang, unconscious beings as far as we know, at least so we don't communicate with. But like most practically for like average people in the world, they want to know, okay, so if I am going to make an analysis of a cell in biology, or if I'm going to begin studying subatomic particles in physics, uh, maybe what does it mean for me to also become aware of awareness itself mm -hmm. or aware of consciousness? Like, what does it mean to become aware of the instrument itself? Sure, yeah. And might in my analysis of that process, when like a trigger comes up, like your mom or your dad or your brother or your spouse or your kid or whatever says something and immediately you, oh, you react and get upset and like you, the whole thing happens. Maybe what <clears throat> is then taught through these traditions is something like equanimity where you can basically train this emptiness where you see this trigger come and it's like the sensitivity to see the trigger come, create a sensation in this web of the chemoelectroconnectomics we were talking about earlier. And then you basically watch it dissolve rather than react that massive cascade of anger. And then what you're left with is again, the peace and the joy. And then you're basically regaining sovereignty and you're regaining that then 
strengthening the unconditional love with your family and beyond. And so there's this deep practicality, not only in when you go out and study form afterward, but also in your moment to moment experience, suffering less, being less depressive, being less anxious. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, there's I, practicality I look at to it. Especially when I'm here, <clears throat> when I have the, the, the pleasure of being in Los Angeles up from San Diego, sometimes on a dark night driving home and you're you know coming over a mountain or something here and you look out or flying into LAX or something like that. And it's almost impossible for, for a human being, uh, even if you look up at all the stars in the night sky, if you go out to the desert, go out to Joshua Tree, go out to wherever you want here, you can only, the human eye can only see about 6,000 individual discrete stars, right? But if you're flying into LAX or you're coming over on the man, mountains of Topanga Canyon, whatever, you're doing a drive at night here, I urge people to do that. You look out, you see tens of millions of discrete lights. Now imagine each one of those is a little soul. There's a human being responsible for that light, in that light. Then I can feel excessive compassion. In other words, the avatar for the for the individual soul or spirit that's there, I can feel a love towards, I could feel that. But to, to say that, oh, well, the quarks that make that person up, I should also, no, because for me, then I start to think, well, do I have compassion for a virus? Do I have, like, is it the constituents? No, it's the organized form. It's the assembly. It's the de-entropy of the process, that the organizational structure of the process. And the more complex it is and the more finely assembled it is, the, the harder it is to represent um, in a simple equation, the less compressible something is. And I think a human being is infinitely complex and also complicated. In other words, like a 747 is really uh, complicated because it takes a lot of parts. It would take you or I a long time to build it. We could build it given all the parts and the right machinery, but it's not complex in that it requires an infinite amount of information to encapsulate what it is, like white noise is complex or pi could be, you know, pi is not complex. But in other words, it's not computable. So in this sense, for me, it's harder to relate to the abstract kind of panpsychist approach to reality or consciousness. And I do, you know, I'm a practical, I'm an experimentalist. So I like to build stuff. And you're talking about the, the sensory organ and, and sensing itself. So I've become very interested lately uh, in these questions of the, you know, in terms of the origin of the universe, is there a way to specify the sensory organ, the sensory apparatus, the sensory laws at the time of the beginning, if indeed there was a beginning? And if there wasn't, can you represent that? And typically this goes by the name of the Wheeler-DeWitt equation or some, you know, pan cosmic conscious, not conscious, pan quantum mechanical wave function. So this is orthodox quantum mechanics. It exists in, in various versions of even alternatives to things like string theory called loop quantum gravity. I'll have a video about that hopefully this week, you know, kind of a, a primer on, on, on what loop quantum gravity is as an alternative to string theory, why it's important. But one of the foundations of it is this Wheeler-DeWitt equation, which is really saying you have a wave function. Let's not get into what that means, but you know, symbolically there's some entity that surmises all the different particles, energies, fields, forces, and so forth in the universe. And then there's some dynamical law or operator that operates on that. But my question is, where does that come from? Like, does the math predate the universe? Um, do we have to think about who created the math, uh, even absent the mind, you know, behind it, like an intelligent designer, I'm not going to argue one way or another, but do you need the math? Do you not need the math to make these predictions about the sensory organ? Cause as you know, in quantum mechanics, you can't make a non-destructive measurement in many different processes that we call important or interesting. 
collapse of the wave function, you know, uh, Heisenberg uncertainty principle. These are destructive measurements. So, so too with the brain. Can you imagine measuring the wave function of the brain? Is that even conceivable? But even more simple than that, elementary than that, is the wave function of the universe. Where does that exist? Does it exist in a mind? Where does mathematics exist? Sometimes I say to my friends, you know, like, does a triangle exist? I'll ask you, does a triangle exist? Can you give me a triangle? So <clears throat> wouldn't another approach to this same line of thinking be that the universe is a mechanism for exploration and for comprehension of infinite possibility. And so there isn't a something outside of what the universe is that acts as a top-down force. Mm. It is simply we are the force. We are the very force that we're looking for. Hmm. So as in the universe itself is the way that we sort of design the process of comprehending infinite possibility. So we, we use the universe as a reality design mechanism to comprehend infinite possibility. So we are it. Yeah. There's, this is what is called non-duality. There's no dualism. There's no separation between yourself and the absolute or yourself and the highest. Mm -hmm. You are the highest. You are it. Hmm. We are it. And that we use this style of reality design and exploration of infinite possibility as the highest to play, to explore. And so this is like a late this is like a later stage or advanced stage of mysticism or spirituality, but it plays very well with science. It's not like science and spirituality are not separate things. They're actually one thing that then we create an illusory barrier between and separate. And so you when you merge the two together and you sort of do the process of what you know when Brett Weinstein was moderating Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson in, in conversation, you know, Brett was talking about this also as a sorting algorithm. And so in a sense, you're, the analogy that's been used for a long time is you drain the dirty bathwater and then you take the clean baby. And so this, we also talked about this in, in high level perception, which is the first visual distillation that we made. And that, you want to archive the dogma and the fundamentalism from the world religions. But in science, you also want to archive the perverse incentives that exist that you also write about yeah. in the, losing the Nobel Prize. Yeah. And you want to retain the beauty of the scientific method and reproducibility, replicability. You want to retain of spirituality what is simply called, like we talked about earlier, is... Well, how do I reduce my suffering? How do I have more peace? How do I have more joy? Just a very simple stuff. Mm -hmm. But also what is called, you know, mysticism or yoga is just simply becoming one with God or the absolute or divine. Mm -hmm. And that process of union is most typically just a turn inwards rather than what you're perpetually overlooking is consciousness itself, is awareness itself. It's so profound, the fact that you have this power to know and that we share right. this power to know. Like the universe, a product of the universe is the power to know 
that then can like turn on itself and be like, dude, what did we just make a universe <laughs> to like play and explore? And but we like overlook it. We're like, ah, consciousness isn't that cool. Right, like, yeah, oh, it's yeah, it's it's just woo woo stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my my issue with it is you know people get attracted to the you know, kind of hardcore science, brass tacks. Let's measure these things. Let's build these satellites. Blast off these rockets. And that's all great, and I love that, and I'm inspired by that, and I do that. But on the other hand, you know, what scientists are really good at are the how questions. You know, how does this reaction take place? How did the first elements on the periodic table get formed? How did these photons, you know, interact with matter that comprise the cosmic microwave background radiation? And maybe the what, you know, what is the universe made of? What's the curvature of space and time? Uh, but what we really care about as human beings is the why. You know, it's like, your kid asks you, you know, like, can I do this? Why? Why not? Why not? And the ultimate answer is always because. Like, you can't tell them the reason. There's no answer other than because. Um, in this case, you can't, you know, and I, I made this analogy, you know, I was talking with Freeman Dyson, you know, late great Freeman Dyson was the first guest on my podcast. And, you know, I was asking him, well, you, you don't call yourself an atheist, but you're not like practicing. And he's like, um, you know, so how do you reconcile your religion and your science? He's like, well, religion uh, is talking about God, which is a great mystery. And science is about like solving puzzles. Like a puzzle and a mystery are different things. They're categorical different classes. Like a puzzle is like a Rubik's cube or a crossword puzzle. Like I might not be good at that. Like my mom is awesome at solving crossword puzzles. I'm just terrible at them. Uh, my kid can solve a Rubik's cube. I can solve it too, but I'll take it apart, you know, whatever. Um, but other things are, are mysteries. And mysteries may or may not be solvable by any human being, right? So I always joke, you know, my job is to turn as many mysteries into puzzles as I can while, while I can. And I think that's the why versus how or why versus what. Uh, and the meaning questions come from the why, a wrestling with the why. You know, my religion is Judaism. And that the word Israel in the Hebrew language means to fight against God. It's a very interesting word, right? Like you think, oh, like Jews are really, you know, they're like worship God, worship God. No, the divine. No, you're fighting with God. You're asking questions. You're wrestling. I don't believe that. Let me struggle. Let me. And that's the whole Socratic Talmudic method that we've been, you know, kind of heir to for thousands of years. Um, but they, but the question is, when do you stop? When does that turn off? And, and one of my friends, James Altucher is a famous writer, podcaster himself. He said, you know, kids stop laughing. You know, they, they laugh like 300 times a day when they're five years old and adults, we laugh, you know, five times a day if we're lucky. So somewhere along the top way, there's like a 60 fold uh, attrition factory. Where does that, where does that go? And, uh, we were talking the other day and I'm just like, yeah, but you know, when you're a kid, you cry over everything. And as you're an adult, you don't cry about almost anything except if, if it, you know, it's really bad. So I guess, you know, there's a trade off of these two different, these two different emotions. But the bottom line is how do you, you know, kind of recapture that or what, what, when do we lose the, the asking the why questions and only focus on the how questions as scientists? That's something that, you know, I'm really obsessed with is how do we, how do we get to the why more often than just the how? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you what I feel like is uh, really relevant for what we're talking about right mm -hmm. now. So what we have is, you know, this is on um, highlevelperception.com, which is, like I said, that first visual mm -hmm. distillation mm -hmm. that we did. Mm -hmm. And so what we have are, if you go under designs, 
Mm-hmm. Right. So first thing is that this is that sorting algorithm visualization, right? So when you drain the dirty bathwater from two different things and then you uplift the baby and you synthesize it together into one, like science and spirituality, or another common one is individualism and collectivism, or another common one is the left and right politically in the US or the US and China or what have you. You can do this endlessly. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, there's that style visualization. And then the other one that you were just mentioning, which is a uh, this one's called the edge. And in this one, the idea is very similarly to what you were saying is we're basically over time undergoing a process of continuously pushing the edge of what is known. And then though it's where all of these different puzzles and all these different, you're basically planting a little flag beyond the edge. And you're like, that's our hypothesis. Let's do scientific method style experiments right. <laughs> to prove it. And then, and then as you do, boom, 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 you push out the edge further. And now, like we showed in this network theory example, mm-hmm. boom, now a new, just like, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto publishes the Bitcoin white paper in 2008. And now all of a sudden, 13 years later, you're like, it's this fractal of cryptocurrencies and decentralization technologies Mm -hmm. and insanity that's emerged. And so this is the, these are the styles of visualizations and processes that can sort of help people understand what we're talking about. But yet simultaneously, there's a, if you're not going to start with the and this is this is visualized here quite simply. If you're not going to start with this, which is like, you know, the magic trick, if you're not going to start with the question of, okay, ha, 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 this is a universe and ha, 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 we're humans on some planet orbiting a star, ha, ha. Okay, but why are we here? Right. Like, come on. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to play this game, but I want to know why. And so then you can just do simple things like make the what science may say is ah this is a big this is a big leap this is a big jump but really if you turn inward you can come to the understanding of this which is that this is a conscious singularity this is infinite oneness this is one infinite creator endlessly expressing itself and using a universe and fractaled out as individuated consciousness to be able to explore and understand. Yeah, I guess for me, the challenge is when you get to uh, incompatible hypotheses. So let, let's take um, general relativity and um, and the hypothesis of a new planet inbound of the planet or inward of the planet Mercury. So just for the listeners that might be not so clear, um, back in the 1700s, it was noticed that the, the planet Uranus was moving in a strange way. And there was an astronomer by the name of Leverrier who was observing this planet's motion, Uranus, this uh, planet just beyond the orbit of uh, about twice the distance from Saturn, uh, from the Earth as Saturn. And uh, he noticed it was behaving very strangely. And he said, maybe there's another planet pulling on this planet Uranus and that's causing its motion to move. And we can't see it. But if I look at historical data tables, I'll be able to determine where it was in the past if it's just a chunk of dark matter, literally a chunk of dark matter, which is Uranus, uh, which is Neptune, later found to be called Neptune. He predicted it based on the laws of universal gravitation predicted by uh, none other than Isaac Newton. 
So in other words, using Newton's laws applied to the strange anomalous behavior of the planet Uranus, he predicted the observation of dark matter in the form of Neptune, an observed planet. And then we observed it, and it's not dark. It reflects the light of the sun, but it's so faint and so small, you can't see it unless you know exactly where to look, which he provided. Then he said, let me turn my telescope on the planet Mercury, which also behaves strangely. So it's orbiting and its orbit is advancing slightly too much per year than it should be if Newton's laws of gravity behave the way that we expect them to. And they seem to hold over the course of the entire universe. Hence, they're called the law of universal gravitation. He said, huh, you know, I knew I was right the first time I proposed a new planet back, you know, when I proposed Neptune, let me propose a new one called Vulcan. And Vulcan orbits on the other side of the sun from us, so we can never see it, but it pulls gravitationally on the planet uh, Mercury, and it's locked just the same way we only see the one side of the Earth, of the moon, so too with Mercury, so we'd never see it, but it would pull on it. Of course, we now know that this is completely wrong. The reason that Mercury's orbit behaves so anomalously is because of the curvature of space that's warped by the presence of gravitational mass in the form of the sun, courtesy of Albert Einstein, so the theory of general relativity. So in one case, you would say, well, the guy's brilliantly right. He proposed this one solution, this hammer. He had a hammer. He hit the nail on the head with Neptune. Uh, and then he tries to apply it again. So he was right. And then he tries to apply the same exact tool, the same sensor, as you were saying earlier, to the exact same type of problem. It's just a planet behaving badly, but he's totally wrong. So do you say that those are just two manifestations of the same consciousness or the same truth? One is right and one is wrong. So in other words, we can't do anything with Vulcan, but we can do something with Neptune. So he was right and wrong on that front, but we don't use the wrong part at all and we only keep the right part. So how do you sure, reconcile sure. those two? Or another way to phrase this is how does the universe understand itself? Yeah, or get to the truth or whatever that means, yeah. Yeah, and so, well, what <clears throat> sensor yeah. does the universe use to understand itself. And what would your answer be to that? Well, I'm saying based on observation. Yeah. yeah, and so, but what is, yeah, so what is, what is the observer? Like, what is that? Yeah. Or another way to say it is, who is that? Are we talking about ourselves? Are we talking about consciousness? Are we talking about awareness? Well, is that what is, is used to understand the universe? You could say that, you know, both, at, like, you can say Isaac Asimov said something like this. He said, if you say the earth is flat, you're wrong. If you say the earth is a perfect sphere, you're wrong. Technically, you're wrong. It actually bulges a little bit at the equator. It's flattened a little bit at the poles because the earth was molten and it spins and it distorts, right? And it's plate tectonics. So you're wrong, but who's more wrong? So are you allowed to say, you know, according to the same score, if you're in the same framework, that the flat earth is wrong and the and the bulge earth is right or and the spherical earth is right? Or where, where, where do you draw the line? Who gets to say that, you know, it's not scientific progress to say the earth is actually closer to round than it is to flat. Like who gets to be the judge? I would say it's judge on observation, which is why I run into problems with things that are in principle unobservable. Like I study the multiverse, you know, how do you judge the efficacy, the accuracy, the uh, applicability of something like the multiverse, which may be impossible even in pr in principle or even in theory to observe. In other words, a parallel universe existing contemporaneously or maybe not in space or in time or both. Um, these are fascinating questions which we, we may never be able to answer. And, and yet we've been faced with such things before, you know, steady state universe versus a big bang. We never thought, although if you asked Einstein, in 1915, could you, you know, prove that the universe had an origin? He would have said, you're stupid. There is no origin of the universe. The universe is basically static. 
And then 14 years later, he was disproved of that, disabused of that notion. So I guess my question is, yeah, I mean, is there, do you get to have a rubric? Do you get to have a metric and say, relativity is better than Newton's gravity? Um, you know, the curvature of space is better than, than planet Vulcan? Okay, so we could even just go to a very simple fundamental, which is, do you prefer happiness, peace, joy? Do you prefer that? Or do you prefer suffering? I Depression. do. I, I do, but okay. I know people who don't. <laughs> right. And yeah. so, so now we're just doing a pretty, hap like a pretty happy versus depressed style mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> juxtaposition. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, and then we say, okay, let's say out of 8 billion people, uh, 7.9 or whatever, you know, on, by, besides the trolls, <laughs> say <laughs> that they prefer to be happy rather right, than right. depressed. And so now you would say, okay, well, what's our, like you were indicating earlier, what is the general rubric that we can potentially civilizationally agree on is an optimized way for us to use this instrument of consciousness of awareness to become more sensitive to guiding us towards happiness and towards joy and towards peace mm. and away from suffering. Mm -hmm. And so... Mm -hmm. It's it's both. It's always both. It's always simultaneous where it's both this sovereign style of like we gave earlier that example with trigger. Mm -hmm. And yet it's also meeting basic needs mm -hmm. because when the basic needs are met, it's much easier for you to also not need to be anxious and survival instinct roaring all the time. Right. And so you have the simultaneity where you have the. It, the saliency and the importance of the analysis of form and leveraging that to maximize human potential, mission critical. Mm -hmm. And yet simultaneously the turn inward mm -hmm. and the true analysis of the very unit, the very vehicle, the very instrument that the universe uses to observe right. and to interpret and to understand, to comprehend. Mm -hmm. And so when you do both of those simultaneously, that's kind of the spirituality and the science right. and merge together into one. And that's when you say the, the yeah. instrument, do you mean human, like homo sapiens or do you mean just yeah. like, yeah. yeah, I agree with you actually, Alan, but there are people who will say, well, how do you know? How do you know the cockroach that I was so gracious and, and beneficent towards uh, didn't step on today? How do you know that that, co that cockroach doesn't have consciousness? And well, the dog and the cat, the cat right. clearly does or have... the bonobo. Yeah. Experience. Correct. It clearly it can suffer. has... Sure. Exactly, yeah. So, so is that less of an experience of consciousness? I, I think so. But, um, but how do you answer people like that that say, well, you think because you can build a sensor that you can cool down to absolute zero, take to the edge of space in the South Pole or in the Atacama Desert, that because of that, it's superior. You know, you're only here because, you know, the Homo sapiens killed up the Denisovans and they have slightly d denser connectomes or, or whatever. Um, I personally don't find that very, uh, you know, very sentient. <laughs> you know, that doesn't bother me so much that, that we're here and we're able to appreciate. Because as, as you say, you know, you can wonder about why we're wondering about why we're wondering about stuff. Or you can say, well, let me actually try to make progress and and make some something meaningful and i think victor frankl said it well you know the search for meaning is is second only to you know food and the maslow hierarchy of need and physical safety it's really only second to that and some people it's above even you know other desires that they have uh for fame and for wealth and, and things like that so i think you know having an actual um meaning in one's life and and the more that you have meaning i think the more fulfillment that you can have um, and to me, yeah, 
these questions, it's just funny because some of the deepest meaning I have is for trying to wrestle with questions that may never be answered, right? And I think that's the deliciousness of life. Yeah, because we simultaneously must humble ourselves to the extent at which we understand that we're part of an infinite mystery. Correct. Yet also be willing to perpetually go deeper and deeper in our understanding of what this reality is and yes. why we're even here yes. and that process. And so that's why this turn inward and becoming really strong at that while also the manipulation of form in maximizing the basic needs being met and this type of stuff, like those two being merged together into one seems to be one of the pinnacle recipes for that. And it also is like one of the most interesting things about the turn inward is that once you get to the more kind of advanced non-dual stages of awareness, when your sense of identity has shifted from like a separate person, like I'm this Atlas Allen unit of life, rather than being a separate unit of life, I become the actual universe itself. I am that itself. That then this style of like barrier or separation between the two individuated units, it dissolves more and more. So I begin radiating like the sun does. Like the sun does not discriminate and begin serving with its unconditional love light that provides the planet with its life. It does not discriminate. And it's just the cloudy perception of the human itself that makes it in its expression, not be able to see the sunlight essence that is what is omnipresently always already free right. and there. And, and you only see in humans the ability to reject, you know, a purpose. Like an animal doesn't have the luxury of rejecting, you know, its uh, its its basic biological needs. In other words. It has a need to feed itself and to feed its young or, you know, whatever biological in, uh, imperatives it has. Um, it can't ignore those. Even a dog, you know, like it will show love. And, and, and it's funny, in Hebrew, the word for dog means um, similar to love. <laughs> the word actually means it is like being loved in some sense, some translation of that. Isn't that interesting? Like a dog loves you, you know, and it looks like that, you know, and it, it will behave like that. But, you know, obviously you don't treat it well. It shouldn't behave like that, right? But human beings have this ultimate kind of luxury that we can ignore this unique thing that we have. In other words, a dog has to, you know, the wild dog has to take care of its its needs. It doesn't can't just like make puppy eyes at some owner and get fed, right? It has to go and dig into the garbage and eat food. But a human being is the only animal that has the luxury to not have to do that. Like in other words, to not have to think about the grand questions of existence or to squander its its uh, the the precious few moments of life that it's given. And, and to even deny that it's meaningful or to deny the, rea the, the value of other people. That's what really gets me. You know, I was thinking the other day, people are talking so much about, um, about artificial intelligence, alien life. And they said, I want to ask you, Alan, actually, they said, you know, tomorrow uh, they discover alien life. Uh, it's proven, you know, there's some talk about UFO, whatever. We, we confirm 100% scientific evidence. There is uh, alien life on some planet we can detect, um, we can detect, easily detect it. 
Um, what what um, what do you think the next day? What what happens? Does the world change? Does the world stay the same? What do you well, personally think? The analogy is just like what we just went through, which is that when you, quote, become more awakened or become more enlightened or you gain more of what the greatest mystics or sages have talked about, that this so-called barrier mm -hmm. between the units of life dissolves more and more, right? Yeah. So it's the same thing with the planet and with another planet. Yes. Is the barrier dissolves more and more. That the life that is birthed on another rock orbiting a star mm -hmm. is not different than no. it's beautiful. It's the same universe, mm -hmm. but it's also beautiful in its difference in the sense that it's although it's the same awareness or the same consciousness that mm -hmm. we're talking about in its most pure or bare state beneath mm -hmm. everything here mm -hmm. it's also cool that our costumes are different yes yes right? so we and, all interact differently and so that's the unity and diversity simultaneously mm -hmm. or another way to visualizing that is just like the the life that is birthed on the different planets brian's got to go soon yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're going to get him out here in a moment it's the similar thing with life on different planets Mm -hmm. Yes. So the well, unity that, of yeah. the universe, mm -hmm. but the unique diversity that is birthed on the different planets, mm -hmm. because it's going to be a different vehicle of sentience. Yeah. I think, though, you know, we, we already know what's going to happen because we've seen this over and over again on Earth. We see species going, getting rid of. You know, if you found a cockroach on Mars, that would be like headlines all over the way, right? In other words, something that's that advanced. And I look at, um, you know, when I see a bonobo or, you know, a capuchin monkey, or you know, we have like 99.9% .9 similar genetics to them. I'm not talking about like a slime mold on the ice cave of Europa. I'm talking about like 99, like right on, you go to Africa and go and meet one or go to the San Diego zoo. You'll meet one of them. Right. And yet we devastate them. We destroy them. And like, we don't care about them. We're going to care more. We're going to feel better about ourselves and our humanity we find that there's a slime mold on the planet Euro on the planet Jupiter's moon Europa. I doubt it. I, so I'm less sanguine. Look at the history of the 20th century. What was done to our people? You know, in different in different instantiations throughout throughout the last hundred years plus. It's awful. The human being's record of self reflection and majesty is quite bad. That's why I look at it and say, well, who is the judge? Like of the you know who sets the agenda for what counts as a conscious agent? Because does a conversation have to be good? Does it have to agitate for goodness, happiness, equanimity, and all the wonderful things that you say? I agree with you. I think a healthy person does, but there's a lot of unhealthy kind of vitriol in the world as evidenced by just, you know, pick up the newspaper. And, and so I do think about that. I worry about, you know, humanity. And I think it's almost a fantasy. And I talk to my, you know, my colleagues in chemistry and biochemistry, um, uh, SETI, you know, people. They think it's just going to be this huge breakthrough and people are going to go, you know, wild in the street. There's going to be peace and love. And I'm like, go down to the beach, scoop up a handful of, you know, of, of sand crabs or whatever. Like there's your life. Like you don't have to go out and search. I'm not saying don't go out. Believe me, I'm an astrophysicist. I'm searching for all the mysteries of the universe that I can possibly answer. I'm not saying don't do it. Don't delude yourself that you're going to find meaning in it necessarily if you do find there's a biomarker out in space or something like that. I'm talking on Wednesday with Adam Frank who wrote a wonderful book called Light of the Stars. He's a professor at University of Rochester, writes for NPR and many other sites. And he's talking about looking for alien civilizations, not by their radio signals or their atomic bombs or their spacecraft, but looking for the effects of global warming that's produced on their planets. In other words, when we created agriculture as homo sapiens, 
that led to a changing of our climate on a global scale. And he thinks that could be done on another planet. We could look for the telltale signs of a civilization by looking for chemical signals in their atmosphere. So that's Wednesday morning on my channel. Yeah, the NASA and SETI folk have called it the exoplanet biosignatures. Correct, yeah. Which is really interesting. Okay, to wrap, yeah, yeah. To wrap <laughs> could we potentially call reality a manifestation of infinite possibility? Um... I mean, you can call it what you like. I feel like it's it's reality is subject to so many definitions that to me, as an experimental scientist, it's frustrating. In other words, I can talk about perception. I can talk about sensors. I had this conversation with Deepak Chopra and with, with Don Hoffman. Yeah, and, and, and the question is, what interacts with a sensor? You know, how do you perce perceive it? Can you detect a soul? Can you detect, does that mean that things that are not detectable now are forever not detectable? That's the question I don't think a scientist would say in the affirmative. So these are interesting topics. I think that they are far enough removed from my ability to define them that I spend most of my time thinking about the question rather than trying to come up with an answer. <laughs> I feel like the level of resonance with that is pretty much what science, logicians, Kurt Girdles, et cetera, mm -hmm. have been for the longest time being like, yeah, this is pretty much where science and spirituality overlap, mm -hmm. that the universe is a manifestation of infinite possibility. You'll never come to the end of infinite possibility. Sure. That's why it's infinite possibility. Yeah. And the universe is a manifestation of that explorative essence of what the true nature is. Mm -hmm. And we use these conscious agents as the mechanism to be able to do said exploration of infinite possibility. I feel like that's where the overlap is and that that's where this next hundred years and, and beyond is really going to be focused it on. It could be. You know, and the thing I point out all the time is that, you know, computers are wonderful assistive devices. Uh, they enable our world. They help us dramatically. Um, however, they don't, uh, they lack the ability to comprehend the infinite. In other words, when you ask a computer to do something uh, infinite, like it will approximate infinity by a large number divided by a very small number. It's largest capable number divided by its smallest capable number. But that's not really infinity by an infinite amount. That's off by an infinite amount. So uh, how, how close could it actually get to describing um, not just an infinitesimal point, like a, like a, like a zero-dimensional object, could it describe a singularity? Could it describe the origin of the universe if indeed there was a singularity? Can it comprehend? No, I think maybe perhaps we'll find that only a human brain, only a human brain can comprehend the infinite. And that to me would be astounding. Such a good way to wrap. <laughs> Beautiful. I love it. Brian, this has been a fantastic round so number one, fun. my brother. It's great to be with Such you. It's great one. to be in person. My first podcast, Local Live, and I'll be back in LA, my brother. Fuck great yeah. to meet I'm you. So, I'm so <laughs> pumped. I'm so pumped for these rounds. They're so strong. And it's a really great vibe on that. Both the into the impossible vibe of interviewing so many great minds and then also becoming more and more of a polymath and disseminating that to the public. And also the links are in the bio below to Brian's channel. Go and subscribe to the channel and check out his massive catalog of interviews and also the links below to his website. You can find his book there as well as you can go and give him a follow on Twitter and Instagram and whatnot. And also let us know your thoughts in the comments below on the episode in general. We would love to hear from you. Uh, like the video, rank it up in the algo, subscribe if you haven't yet to the mm -hmm. channel. 
and also share the video with other people that you feel like it would resonate with because these are the types of conversations that will hopefully be further making relatable distillations to the masses around the core essence of science of spirituality weaving those two together these types of things how to make people's lives practically better how to make the collective practically better beautiful beautiful simple stuff love you everyone thank you for tuning in thanks again thank you thanks again thanks again brian cool all right much love peace everyone